Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, could it be true that genetic genealogy is exonerating more people than it's finding guilty? Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to the genetic detective Cece Moore about her work. Plus, photo expert Ron Fox shares some ideas to enhance your family history and tells a story about a photo he provided to Dick Van Dyke and what Dick's reaction was to this remarkable photograph. That's all this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover. Gather. Connect. A presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome, America, to America's Family History Show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth, on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. Well, today we got Cece Moore back. We're going to catch up with her, and she's going to tell you why she says her work is actually exonerating hundreds of people. What's going on with that? You'll hear from CeCe. Then a little bit later on in the show, my old friend Ron Fox is back. He is the photo expert from Salt Lake City, Utah. He's going to talk about a few tips for you, some ideas for capturing some old photos that might relate to your history. Plus, he's going to tell you a story about his experience providing a photograph to Dick Van Dyke, which flipped him out. You'll hear the whole thing coming up in about 20 minutes. Hey, don't forget to sign up for our weekly Genie newsletter. Go to ExtremeGenes.com or to our Facebook page to get signed up. You get a blog from me each week, a couple of links to past and present shows, and links to stories that you will find fascinating as a genealogist. And right now, it's time to head out to Boston, Massachusetts, where David Allen Lambert is standing by, the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. Hello, David. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. How's the uh, holiday shopping going for you and the family? Isn't it nice to be able to just sit at a computer and order stuff and have it show up at people's doors? I mean, <laughs> I like this. Yeah, Cyber Monday is kind of like Cyber Month for me because that's how I'm doing most of my shopping. Absolutely. In fact, I just bought a whole genome sequencing kit for my wife and me for the holidays. Did you, like, mortgage the home for that? <laughs> it's or? funny you say that. I got a text from Dr. Scott Woodward. You may recall he was on the show just a mm -hmm. few Few weeks back and we were talking about whole genome sequencing and he talked about Dante Labs and he said, watch out for the holiday sales. Now, here's the thing. We record the show, of course, ahead of the time period the show airs and becomes a podcast. So at the time we're recording this, there's a deal on right now for a $599 whole genome sequencing test for just $149. $149. So I don't know if that's still going to be in effect by the time you hear this, but check it out at us.dantelabs.com. Hopefully, it'll still be there all the way through the holidays. There's nothing on there that says how long this deal will last. Now, what does this test do for people fish that the other ones don't? Nothing to do with genealogy so much as health, and it analyzes your tendencies. If you go back and listen to the conversation with Scott Woodward, he talked about looking, for instance, on his wife's genome, she had a tendency to drive fast. Oh, God. <laughs> he said it was exactly right. He says he sits up till 2 in the morning looking at all the different traits that you have by having your full genome sequence. So I wanted to try it. I've ordered the kit and i probably won't be able to tell you much till next year but i'm looking forward to it that's great well you know i'll tell you using dna has been amazing for genealogy but as we know with of course with everything that goes on with our good friend cc moore is that dna helps solve crimes especially cold cases and this is going on right now 
with a grant that the Department of Justice gave Prince George County, Maryland's investigators. Now they're able to start looking at some of the cold cases that they have. That includes 120 murders and over 360 assault cases. So what they're going to do is they're going to take these DNA samples that they've never matched against the national DNA database that law enforcement uses and run it against genealogy websites that have DNA evidence on there to search. Wow. Like Jedmatch. Like Jedmatch. So basically, they're just getting all into the game now. That's right. And they got a grant to do so. So hopefully that will put some closure to some families and some victims. Yeah, but it's also going to be the beginning of something that could be a national effort. Wow. Speaking of national effort, of course, we look across the pond now, and the genealogy of President-elect Biden has already been investigated. But he shares something in common with Obama, JFK, Reagan. They all have Irish ancestors who left around 10 years plus or minus of when the famine happened. So they have some roots of a common migration. Yes, and the Irish Times has been writing about this, that they all left during the famine in the 1840s, all these ancestors of these presidents. And now mm-hmm. they note that after several generations now, they are taking their place in the leadership of the country. And it talks about Biden's great-great-grandfathers originally from County Mayo and County Louth. You know, it's interesting how you look at it and you wonder how many people look at their family tree now and they say, oh, wait a second, I have family from that county. I have that same family from that county. Because <laughs> you, you had a neighbor that was related to Trump. Yeah, I did. I yeah, I was looking yeah. at somebody's uh, genealogy trying to help them out and found out that they were like fourth cousins with President Trump and they never spoke to me again. They didn't want the information. Let's move on to something even more exciting than DNA. How about uniforms? Because you know I like military stories. Of course. There's a great story on ExtremeGenes.com about a uniform that belonged to a veteran from both World War One and World War II. But you know, it's a great story. It's like that dog tag that was found in the dashboard. Well, this uniform wasn't found in the dashboard, but it's been returned back to the family itself. And I think that's kind of fun. So this soldier from both wars, Royal Gervais, joined the Army and served in World War I, as well as an infantry officer in the Second World War, retiring as a colonel 34 years later. So this uniform was found, and as most military things, it turns up at flea markets and yard sales, and guess what? The family now has it. So what was once lost is now cherished by the descendants right around Veterans Day, in fact. Isn't that cool? And and the, the family that wound up having it, they actually put stuff on the internet and showed the different awards above the pocket and mm-hmm. got an analysis to learn that it was from World War One and Two, and they were actually able to figure out who it was. They did a little of their own investigating online. It was awesome. It's great stuff. I'll tell you, military uniforms are great because you can tell all those battle ribbons as to where you were and different campaigns that you're in, including, of course, that reference back to the First World War. Well, that's about all I have for this week for you as I get ready to partake in wrapping lots of presents. All right, David, thank you so much. We'll talk to you at the back end of the show as we do Ask Us Anything. And it's great to be back with my good friend, Cece Moore. She's the genetic detective on ABC. She is the power behind genetic genealogy with Finding Your Roots with Dr. Henry Louis Gates on PBS. She's the person behind the DNA detectives. Cece, welcome back. It's great to have you. How are things? It's wonderful to be back. I always love speaking with you. So thanks for having me. Well, thank you. Fill us in on what's new. Now, I know you're coming up on a milestone with your DNA detective group, and this is pretty exciting. Yes. This week, we will hit 150,000 members. I created the group February 27th, 2015. 
So we're about five and a half, almost six years in. And I believe it's the biggest DNA group in the world. I can't think of any I can't other imagine that yeah. many people. <laughs> no, I yeah, wouldn't imagine I mean, that. What's going on on finding your roots? You're still doing that as well. I am. And, you know, a lot of people think I was just been a consultant all these years, but I've actually been a full-time production team member all of these years since 2013. And it's been really hard to balance that with everything else I'm doing. And I'm so fortunate that we finally have somebody else on the show. Kimberly Morgan has come on as one of the associate genealogists working with Nick Sheedy. She is really good with DNA. So this is the first time I've had somebody to help me with the genetic genealogy research on the show. And it's been just wonderful. How fun is that? And, and we got a whole new season of that coming up in January. And we've got Dr. Gates coming on at that time to talk about uh, some of the celebrities coming up. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And, uh, and of course, the genetic detective's been out there for a while. And I would imagine with COVID, that's kind of shut down a lot of things because you did a lot of travel for the show. I did. And I haven't been able to do anything like that. I've definitely been working from home. It's also affected finding your roots, but we have been in production. You might notice when you start seeing the newer episodes that the table is longer. They've got Dr. Gates, <laughs> a, a six-foot table now, so the guest is further away. They are following all of these very strict guidelines for being able to film the show. No one else is in the room except the cameraman, typically, and they're watching from monitors in other rooms, everyone's masked up except for Dr. Gates and the guests. They're doing testing. So we are able to continue to create content for that series, but it has been challenging. And, you know, it's harder for people to travel, of course. Dr. Gates has been driving long distances to get to those interviews in some cases. So the show's going to look a little different. But we hope everyone will still be happy to have it. You know, it's certainly yeah. uh, better to have it, even if it's not exactly the way it's always been. A lot of cases will only have two guests instead of three. As some people have seen in the recent episodes, they've done some remixes where they've taken some of the former guest stories and mixed them with newer guests. And so sometimes people think it's a rerun, but it's actually not a rerun. It's a, a remix, and there's going to be huh. some new material in that as well. So this is, of course, just your side work <laughs> because your main job <laughs> is uh, putting people behind bars for uh, things from a long time ago, cold cases, cold case murders. And you've actually had a couple of court cases recently, as I understood, that were won. And this is kind of unique and important for a couple of reasons. First of all, you get a lot of people who confess up front, so it's never really tested in court. The question of genetic genealogy helping to identify a potential suspect. But when it gets into court, we haven't seen anybody challenging the technique because it's just treated like a tip. But now you've actually had some people who pled not guilty, went to court and got convicted. Right. So we're about two and a half years into this now. And when we started... There was a lot that was unknown, of course. We didn't know how the courts would treat this and how juries would view it. And it took a lot of time before the cases started going to jury trials, of course. And so in summer 2019, we had the very first case that went to a jury trial where the suspect had been identified through investigative genetic genealogy. But it's been pretty slow going. And just recently, we've seen a number of cases go to jury trial and get convictions. And so it's starting to set a real precedent yeah. for the use and acceptance 
of genetic genealogy in these cases. So that's exciting. Well, it and is. And it's a little surprising that there haven't been more challenges. You know, there's been a lot of talk about Fourth Amendment issues, but the defense attorneys are not bringing those issues up, by and large. This isn't becoming an issue in these trials. And so every time I'm on hold to be an expert witness, I've been canceled without exception because they've all decided that genetic genealogy isn't really an issue that they can challenge. Right. Now, that's not to say, you know, that'll never change. Maybe a defense attorney one day will challenge it to a greater degree. But it is setting a precedence across the United States now that genetic genealogy really is a tool. This isn't evidence to be admitted in court in front of a jury. This is a tip that pointed them towards someone. And then it's the investigation they did from there that is what is used in court. And it is just a tip. And, and it's nice to know, too, that as more and more people get involved in genetic genealogy, we might be able to solve more and more of these things. Yeah, you know, we're up to 133 successful identifications, and those are just ones where they've been fully confirmed and the agency has told us, yes, you pointed us in the right direction. We have confirmed that this is the person who contributed that DNA. And we have many, dozens and dozens more that are still in the pipeline that we feel are you know, highly confident mm -hmm. identifications. And so I think we've really proven it. You know, the power yes. of genetic genealogy extends far it, to any type of human identification, whether it be traditional genealogy, unknown parentage, adoption cases, or in identifying someone who left their DNA behind at a crime scene, or an unidentified deceased person, many times victims. Now, with all those cases, Cece, how many have you had so far that might have actually exonerated somebody? So officially, I just have one exoneration from my work, and that is the Angie Dodge case. I think we've probably talked about it. Right. Christopher Tapp was formally exonerated. Up in El Dorado, California, that the Sacramento DA's help, they also were able to officially exonerate someone using investigative genetic genealogy. Sweet. They're doing a lot of work up there. In fact, they just had the jury conviction of the NorCal rapist up there, I think just this week or last week. So they're doing a lot of good up there as well with their team. But there are thousands, or depending how you look at it, millions of informal exonerations. Because in every case I work, They've looked at hundreds of innocent people over the years or decades. Hmm. Many of those people have continued to carry that burden of suspicion in the community, from family members, from friends. So every time we're able to finally successfully help identify the real perpetrator, there are many, many, many others who feel that burden of suspicion finally lift off their shoulders. And I've actually heard from a lot of those people. I was going to ask you that. What do they say to you about that experience? They're just so appreciative. There's a case where a teenage girl was murdered and her sister has always been blamed, which is just insane to Ooh. me. You know, the community somehow got in their heads that this teenage girl's teenage sister was somehow responsible for her vicious death. And it never made any sense. But until we were able to finally identify that killer, who was also a rapist, she was carrying this. She even went on Dr. Phil and talked about what it's done to her life. And so she is incredibly appreciative. And Dr. Phil just did a follow-up about it, actually, and had her talk a little bit about what it's meant. And it's just freeing. You know, it is this very heavy burden. 
that thousands of people, probably tens of thousands of people across this country carry because they were pulled into an investigation and the real killer was never identified. And so they've never been totally cleared in the public eye, even if law enforcement has cleared them, even if their DNA has ruled them out or they took a lie detector test, they've still had this suspicion on them. And in some cases, that's even gotten worse lately and intensified because of all the podcasts focused on true crime. You know, a lot of times they'll bring up someone's name and they think, you know, they'll yeah. suspect this. And that's really tough. Just imagine if somehow your name was brought up as potentially a guilty party in a case like that. Oh, we see a lot of interviews like that on uh, TV shows. You know, 48 Hours right. brings up a lot of people like that. And, and uh, the focus in these cases is so much on the arrests and the identifications, but I am at least equally as proud of all of the informal exonerations or clearing of people's names. I think that's hugely important and really has an almost bigger impact overall. To a great extent, you're probably right. And do you find that it's helping a lot within their families, some healing going on there? You know, I don't think we can ever give a family or a victim closure, unfortunately. The damage is done. But there is something to having resolution and answers, and in some cases, justice. So yes and no. It's not like unknown parentage cases where so often our work leads to a happy beginning and a very heartwarming story. These are such difficult, painful cases, and the families and the surviving victims have suffered so much that we can't fix it. But this is the least we can do for them, is to give them some answers, some resolution, and in these cases that do go to trial or have convictions through plea deals, you know, I think it is a huge gift to them. And I've also seen the burden lift from their shoulders because many of these people feel that weight of trying to get justice for their loved one. And for rape survivors, they're always looking over their shoulder from what they tell me, wondering if that person is nearby, are they going to find them again? Are they going to victimize them again? She's see more. She's the genetic detective. She is the force behind DNA research on finding your roots on PBS. And uh, have a great holiday season, and we'll catch up again sometime early next year. Thank you so much. Happy holidays to everybody listening as well. Hey, it has been a while since we have spoken about photographs, and it's always a joy to have my good friend Ron Fox on the line. And Ron is one of the foremost finders of rare and historic photographs based in Salt Lake City, Utah. Ron, how are you? It's great to talk to you again. I'm doing just great. Thanks, Scott. Boy, you are uh, always showing me new little tricks just for identifying photos, which is a great way to go. Talk a little bit about how people can identify places in photographs or date them just by what's in the photo, yet alone the photographer on the back and some of the standard things you would do that way. And that's just the case. Many people, when they do genealogy, they want to know more about their family and what they did and where they work. And the good old city directories would not only list their home address, but they would also say, well, they were working at Joe's Jewelry Store on 34th and Main. Right. And if you could find those photographs that are period, whether it's 1860 or 1960, these directories will help you find the particular store 
and the right time period that your ancestor was working there. And it's basically as you go through the years, which you can find these usually in either universities or in your public libraries. Sure. And and they'll have them for each city for each year that they were ever issued. And you can see by the fronts of the photographs of the names of the business and by process of elimination, you can pretty well nail a business by a 10-year period. And so if you've got a grandpa that was working in the jewelry store in, in 1890 and you've gone through the 1880 to 1900 city directories, you're going to nail that. And it's just kind of fun to add to your family history something more about their work life and what they did. Well, you're absolutely right. And it's not just the work life. For instance, my great-grandfather died in a hotel in upstate New York, and it was a small place. Mm -hmm. It was one of these Mm -hmm. areas of upstate New York where they would go to restore their health. And one way I was able to find photographs of this place was going onto eBay and looking at the old postcards that people have for sale there, and they'll identify it. And sometimes the photos can be dated at least close to the period that the photo was taken based on the postmark of somebody who sent that postcard to somebody else. Absolutely correct. I have done work with Ancestry.com, and they bought a huge collection of European and U.S. postcards for this very purpose, so people can see the street scenes and the city offices and the shops during different periods of time. And it's a great resource to add to give you the color and the flavor of what your family life was like. Now, I seem to recall that you had a fascinating experience with Dick Van Dyke. What was it, a year yeah. or two ago? And, and yeah, a couple it, years ago, he yeah. was at, at Fanex in Salt Lake City, and he came in and shake hands and photographs with people. And I had worked with the owners of that exposition, and they always had me do a little something for a couple of the stars that came in. And, and in one case, I did Dick Van Dyke, and I just spent a couple of hours on the computer using different resources. And I found in a county in which he came from a photograph of his grandfather's home where he actually grew up. I mean, I think his grandfather raised him more than his dad. So I found this photograph of this farmhouse and I printed it out and took it to him to show him that here's some of the things I did. And he was just taken back because that was, of course, the home where he grew up. But he's been restoring that home along with the local community there to get it back to when he was a child in the community. And he said, we've done lots of research, but he said, we didn't know what this one side of the house looked like. He basically says, this is going to the architects and and (laughs) as it's being restored, it's going to go back to look like it was. Isn't that great? It's funny because you were doing some research on him, and I knew you did more than just the picture. That was just one aspect of all the work Mm -hmm. you had done. And here Mm -hmm. you stumbled upon this, and that was the one thing he really latched onto. And it's one thing to say, here, Mr. Van Dyke, here's a picture of the home you grew up in back in the day. And now he's taking it and saying, oh, it's more than that. We're trying to restore it to look like that, like it looked when I was there back in the day. I mean, that's incredible. It's like two different layers on top of two different layers. It is. I mean, uh, one other experience that I had with the FanX group was that I did something for Sam J. Jones, who was Flash Gordon in the movie Flash Gordon. Mm -hmm. And several times I took him different information, and he says, well, my genealogy is real tough. He says, my name is Jones, and my mother's family's name was Jones. Oh, dear. And and he says, (laughs) so it gets a little confusing. Sure. So I, I started doing the work on that, and after about an hour's worth of work, 
I said, I got to tell you, Sam, uh, we're second cousins because my family is from the same area and I have a Jones in my family and it's your Jones. So wow. we were literally like second cousins twice removed or something like that, but we were close as far as being relatives. So there's great experiences. Going back to photos, though, photography is great in that uh, a lot of people today with the digital photographs have far more captured moments. And I really have to tell you that with all of this digital world that we live in, we really do have to mark our digital stuff as far as where it came from and properly store it because those are the treasures of the future. And I worry a lot because we don't print enough photographs and the printed photograph will stay for a lot longer than the digital photograph do you think uh, yeah there well, are an I awful think lot of places those things are online and available and facebook is of course one of them but you know i would think the best pictures are the ones that people are marking up anyway because we take so many duplicates triplicates and you know where we have to delete 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 or you'd run out of room but uh, and you've got tools now like Memory Web, which I think is an incredible mm-hmm. opportunity mm-hmm. for people to not only store their stuff, but to properly market, have that data travel with the photograph, have it visible or invisible. I mean, it's an amazing tool. And I would think and hope that it's only going to get better over time and that we're seeing more and more people starting to get comfortable using tools like that. Mm hmm. Well, and also we're dealing with generational issues with photographs in that our children or our grandchildren are saying, do I really want to haul around all those boxes of photos that my mother and my grandparents had? Right. And then there's always the photos that were hanging on the wall that were, you know, 16 by 20 inches that are single shots of the grandma or the grandpa that was in the bedroom and looked like it was always staring at you. I, I, <laughs> I have one of those. Earlier. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we worked, it's, it's almost like going to Disneyland and having the haunted mansion and, and they look at you. <laughs> yes, I'm actually staring at mine right as we speak and he's looking right back at me. It's my second great grandfather, Fisher. It's crazy. These photos are precious things that we need to keep and be grateful that we do have what we have. And, you know, we can take a thousand photographs in a month on a digital camera, but we have to remember that our grandparents and our great grandparents had a photo taken sometimes of themselves maybe three times in their life. Yes. You know, at their marriage, uh, as a child, and maybe with their kids when they're older. Well, and, and that's part of the problem today. I've thought about actually creating books and going, okay, here are family pictures in the 19th century. And here are our family pictures, well, you can't say in the 20th century. I mean, the book could be too fat. But you Mm -hmm. could break it down and do a book and say, all right, in the O's, the 19-teens, and the 1920s. That might make one book, right? Yeah. But you Mm -hmm. start to get into the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, you do have that explosion, and it's an awful lot of work. But I think, you know, to digitize them is to control them. In other words, if you're thinking Mm -hmm. about the future and what's going to happen to these treasures, to digitize them and put them in books and properly mark them is the best possible way that you could possibly imagine for the next generation to want to keep these things. It is so true. He's Ron Fox. He's the photo man from Salt Lake City, Utah. And Ron, always a joy to talk to you. Great story about Van Dyke. I really enjoyed that. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Very good. Thanks, Scott.
All right, let's get Lambert back in here. It's time once again for Ask Us Anything on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show, and ExtremeGenes.com. And, uh, David, our first question comes from Ken in Poughkeepsie, and he says, Guys, as we look forward to the COVID vaccine, and aren't we all, uh, are there any records about inoculations of ancestors that we could look for? That's a really good question. David, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, actually there are. And the first thing that comes to mind, it's not really an American inoculation summary, but it's a census of church members in Sweden. Besides finding out the person's age year by year, these sort of church censuses also tell you if the person had been inoculated against smallpox. Really? Mm -hmm. That's kind of fun. And the other thing is go on this side of the pond. Obviously, there's a lot of records that are lost in St. Louis, Missouri, but if you get into the records that do survive for our veterans of World War II, World War I, and if they were in the hospital, you might find that they were inoculated or got certain vaccinations before they got into the service. The other thing is that there are surviving records even earlier. I mean, Revolutionary War. I mean, there's diaries right. and journals. The Civil War, if a person is in a hospital in, say, Washington or one of the camp hospitals, sometimes there are medical records, and you can find that perfectly well in a very easy-to-find place, the pension file. Because the pension files talk about the medical illnesses of your ancestor, and if it's contributed to why they're getting a pension years later, you know, did they get some sort of exposure to something, or did they get smallpox or something like that? I mean, in the Revolutionary War, smallpox outbreaks did occur in the camps. And I remember, too, that General Washington actually got smallpox back, I want to say, in the 1750s in Barbados, and his brother mm -hmm. died of it. He survived it, so he understood the seriousness of smallpox. So, as I recall, he wanted to have inoculations as they did them back then for as many of the soldiers as possible because he felt that could be the difference in the war. That's true. You know, it's funny. You think about inoculations. I was going through some of my baby book stuff my mother had, and I found my inoculation book that was kept at the doctor when I had this shot and that shot. And, then, you know, you laugh at it now, but it's like, I don't have a diary of my childhood. And here I was inoculated for this and that. And when my daughters were born, I got the shot that prevents chickenpox. I never had chickenpox as a kid. Huh. But now I got a mild version of it when they gave me the shot for chickenpox when my oldest daughter was born. I mean, inoculation history is truly part of our own story. And medical records, unfortunately, like hospitals and doctors, aren't kept forever. So if you have medical records on a parent or a grandparent, you might think about preserving them. Well, and they could be of great benefit to those who follow, especially if they wind up with the same condition, you know, inherit it. Absolutely. And that's tr very true, of course, with DNA telling us everything that we may possibly be susceptible to. <laughs> then we find out in our own genealogical records, oh, yeah, that's what Grandpa had. Yeah, that's exactly right. You've really kind of intrigued me here because my grandmother was Swedish, and I had a great-grandmother who was Swedish. So now I'm going to have to go back in those records and see if they got inoculated against smallpox. Maybe that's why we've never gotten it in my family. Well, that's so probably <laughs> not true, but that's okay. I'm glad it, and they continue to not be the case in your family. May you never get smallpox. Exactly. Ever. You know, it's interesting when you talk about health history. You know those newspapers back then, anytime somebody got sick or if they got influenza during the Spanish flu, it's in the newspaper. Stay away from the Johnson family because they are quarantined. I mean, if people have COVID now, it's not published in the newspapers. 
But there are lists, and who knows genealogically years from now if those will ever become public on something like, say, Ancestry.com. Really interesting. All right, Ken, thanks for the question. Great one. And uh, David, this question comes from Patty Phelps in Abilene, Kansas. And she says, Fisher and Mr. Lambert. Oh, you get the Mr. Lambert. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, first of all, happy holidays. I just learned that my great uncle was a career small-time criminal. <laughs> what might I be able to find on him? Boy, this is funny that she asked this because I just heard this very similar thing from a cousin of mine about a branch that's unrelated to me. There's a lot of stuff out there, Dave. Well, there is, and I can't claim to be scot-free on this one. Grandpa was that bootlegger, sort of a small-time criminal in Boston. And yeah, the newspapers, well, that's one thing you can search with Genealogy Bank and newspapers.com. And, you know, these are great things that you now can search on an ancestor's name and Find things like was arrested, went to trial, was placed in jail, was now released from jail. Things that you're really not hoping to find about your ancestors. But, you know, this many years later, the skeletons in our family closet become really interesting discussions during the holidays. <laughs> I can't tell you how many stories I dug up for my uh, my second cousin in Connecticut about his great uncle. And it turned out that this guy was sent to Sing Sing for six months and he found the actual oh. certificate and it mapped out everything and physical description, what he was in for, how long he was going to go. I mean, it was absolutely amazing to see. Then we started digging and I just used a simple Google search on him and found mm -hmm. that there was a book about prosecuting crime in Cleveland, Ohio. And this guy, by the way, was from Long Island. But this yeah. book about prosecuting crime in Cleveland used this guy as an example in the book and reviewed his entire criminal career as a pickpocket for his first yes. 15 years of his career. And the book was written by Felix Frankfurter, who later became a Supreme Court justice. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. What is the chances of something like that? I'll tell you, <laughs> serendipity and genealogy just goes hand in hand. I'll tell you, some of the things that you find, Fish, are blow my mind every time. <laughs> but yeah, there are lots of records out there. I mean, obviously, you want to try to see on the local level if your ancestor was arrested in town, you get the small town papers. Maybe the police department has a record. Sometimes the old annual town reports used to list who's in the lockup or... <laughs> career local criminals and then you can try county jails the state prison and those records might be with your state archives so there's lots of different avenues and of course then there are people that do the real big time federal prison and then you can yeah. find a lot of those records on the national level and i should mention this book about cleveland and crime went through his record of arrest there in cleveland and it mentioned that there had been a mugshot taken and so, you know, we're thinking with all the arrests he had all over the country, he was in L.A., Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, Jersey City, Brooklyn, Manhattan. I mean, you can go on and on and on and on. So I'm thinking that this guy's got mugshots all over the place. And I would suggest, Patty, that you may have a very successful journey in looking into this guy, because frankly, the bad guys make more records than the good guys. That's true. Because if you have a very boring existence, you might just have a gravestone inscription. I love the stories about my grandfather, especially one from about two weeks before my dad was born in the 20s. Mr. Lambert has been requested to give up the liquor business. 
So from one Mr. Lambert <laughs> to the other Mr. Lambert, thank you for your question, Patty. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, if you have a question for Ask Us Anything, just email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. Talk to you next week, David. Talk to you soon, my friend. And that is our show for this week. Talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.